bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica and we're back. And not only are we back, we have a new co-host, Arzu Najib Zadeh. Is that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay, good. Arzu Najib Zadeh. I feel like I just, okay, I just learned something and like used my jaw differently. That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Say hello to our fans. Hello. I'm so excited to be joining Erica and Erin on this amazing podcast I've been listening to for years. Um, I think this is such an exciting opportunity to not only hang out with such amazing badass feminists, but to be able to kind of diversify this whole thing that we know as Canadian media and to be able to bring exciting, new, fresh, intersectional uh, conversations into our, you know, everyday uh, topics like Canadian media and what's going on around the world. Canadian media is tripping. That's what I know. Yeah. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. so funny to me. Like, they have no idea of what to say right now. And it is delicious because we've been telling them for years, yo, you need to diversify not only your newsroom, but your management structure. And they've refused to do it. And now those chickens are coming home to roost. Anyway, before we start the real um, episode, uh, so a lot of you, I'm going to do some admin and a lot of you have talked to me and messaged me about support and how to support bad and bitchy. So, you know, we always take your money. We we will never turn that away. So <laughs> if you have money, that is, we do have a Patreon. Some of you have expressed um, that you want a different way of monetarily supporting us, maybe in a lump sum that Patreon does not allow or that you have issues with Patreon for some, for whatever reason. And that's fine because we have a PayPal account. Just message us or email us and we'll send you that info. Um, also, when we ask for monetary support, we're not expecting people who are struggling for this monetary support. That's not who we're asking. We're asking the haves, not the maybe haves or have nots. Um, So given that, also, if you cannot support us monetarily, uh, comment, share, um, retweet, repost, um, add us to your stories. All of this media activity matters. And it matters a lot in just today's media environment. So even doing that, subscribe um, to subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends. All of that just really matters and really helps us out. Okay, second piece of administration. So we are, we're not rebranding. We're just 
let's just say we're re to we're re-upping the assets. We're redecorating. We're redecorating. <laughs> yes, exactly. We are leaving behind anything that does not serve us. We're Maria. We're Marie condoing this shit. That's basically yes. what we're doing. <laughs> so we mm. also want to know what kind of content you want to see from us. Um, again, like you guys know how to hit us up. Uh, basically, like you will find our email, our social media um, accounts on each podcast. Um, and sit back and enjoy, I guess. So our, our zoo. Tell us about so first of all um we had a little issue because you had a covid experience where you were stuck in iran and you've recently three months for three months <laughs> so it's funny because like arzu and i met like three months ago well we didn't meet three months ago we've known each other for about a year before that and then all, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to Iran to because for some family stuff or whatever. I'll be back in like, I think it was early March. You were supposed to be back yeah. March 5th or something like yeah. that. And you got back when? May when? <laughs> late May. Yeah. Like late May. So, um, yeah. <laughs> are you still in quarantine? Are you still in quarantine? I think I'm a few days into kind of being able to leave the house. Yeah. But I mean, we're all in quarantine, so I'm not risking anything. I'm I'm not leaving my house until 2021. I'm sorry, <laughs> friends, family, you're not going to see me. I'm back in Canada, but no, I'm still at home. Uh, it's all a bit bizarre and scary, but no, I think I'm I'm just trying to get used to it for now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of just adjust. Well, the whole world's gone to shit, so... Honestly, whatever plans anybody has is like they've just been obliterated. Well, not just, but they have yeah. been obliterated. All right. So let's get into it. So our first topic in This Week in Feminism is uh, Black Lives Matter Edmonton's petition to defund the police. And so defunding the police has gained traction, obviously, in the wake of all of the George Floyd um, anti-police brutality protests around the world um, as protests stretch into a six day. I think we're at seven now, seven or eight days. No, shoot. I think we're at 12. I think the protest is like 12 or 13 days old. Anyway. So Los Angeles officials said last Wednesday that they would look to cut 100 million to 150 million from the city's police budget as part of a broader effort to reinvest more dollars into the black community. In all, May Mayor Eric Garcetti pledged that the city would quote identify 250 million dollars in cuts so we can reinvest in jobs, in health, in education, and in healing. End quote especially in the city's black community, as well as communities of color and women and people who have been left behind. The LAPD's total annual budget is $1.86 billion. So Black Lives, so this is interesting because Black Lives Matter Edmonton actually created a petition and 
to um, and it's a letter template so that you can send to your um, elected re- representatives basically to say, uh, let's defund these this police force these police forces that are becoming more and more militarized exactly so now what are your initial so how long have you been on this defund the police thing because i feel like you're because you're not new to this now (laughs) i think it, it obviously my my the extent of my involvement or even knowledge to knowledge about um, the you know police violence and police brutality um, will never go as far as some of these communities that are now calling for defunding and the scaling back of police forces. I just want to um, share that. But at the same time, we know that um, the police like forces in Canada specifically, whether it be on the national level through the RCMP or on the local level, whether it be the York Region Police, the Toronto Police or the Edmonton and police department um they're rooted in uh, canada's history of slavery and colonialism and my understandings are a bit more academic again they're not personal as much but we know that policing remains a big part of maintaining colonial social order and white supremacy power in our country and uh, again, anti-black, anti-black practices like carding until a few years ago, they were uh, prevalent in Toronto. And I'm sure that it still may happen in specific situations. I think it's, um, it's, it's, situations. it still happens. It still happens yeah. on a, on a I mass think, wasn't scale. wasn't it on a mass scale? Because yeah. I, I may have heard something about carding going out in Toronto, but I'm not sure specifically. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. It, okay, let me just do okay, a quick So so let me just say that there's been a lot of 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 um I would say ambivalent they s- communications on the carding issue because didn't Kathleen Wynne at some point said it was over but it wasn't and it's been really, really I think really it was in late 2019 that the Toronto police said that they've effectively ended the practice of arbitrarily stopping people who are not involved in an investigation. So when it comes to carding. So I think it's not as random. They're saying that it won't be as random as it was before. But what does but, effectively um, mean? So I think and it this was I think this was announced in late 2019 in November. Yeah, but again, but what um, what does effectively mean? That's the thing. Right? What does cuz they haven't banned the practice. They've effectively no. banned the practice. Yeah. And that's and my problem. And it's a very specific kind of wording, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The other thing too is that there's a huge big friggin' database of black people's information. Yeah, information. And, and what are yeah. they going to do about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so again, yeah. carding, anti-black practice, behavior, they remain entrenched in our police services and Edmonton police and Toronto police and all of these other local police forces. Girl, Ottawa's still, a shit show. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, kind of inflicting kind of black, uh, anti-blackness, um, inflicting harm on yeah. anti-black Sorry, I don't know what I'm saying. That's okay. But again, we know that 
they're entrenched in police services and that they inflict harm on black citizens, mm-hmm. um, whether it be carding, whether it be street harassment, and then in more extreme, uh, you know, forms, um, you know, sh- you know, it leads to shootings and murders. And um, with with this within this specific moment that we're on, we're with governments recognizing that investing in communities, investing in mutual aid, investing in community led initiatives for support and sustainability um i think it's a it, it, we do have we are in a specific place in time where making conversation around defunding and scaling back police funding um can have a new form can be more conver- can be more inclusive and um can be more open in ways that allow for kind of exchange of information and ideas in ways that we haven't seen before again recognizing that this is nothing new like abolitionist and black liberation organizations have been talking about this for years far before even like someone you know we were born right yeah so yeah um, this has been going on for generate uh, this is for this is for our communities experience since we were brought over here and not yes. and not by choice that means you yeah. too Canada. so i yes hello yeah um so i think this is now is a very specific time that governments will actually have to look at their budgets and see what's really helped and supported communities not only through this pandemic uh, and the um, economic downfall that's going to follow it, but then also with acti- actively and proactively taking into consideration the, the calls for defunding um, the police that have been coming up from black communities and also indigenous communities. Yeah, I was just going to um, say they've been, they've been doing this work too. A lot of indigenous yeah, groups yeah. have been doing this work to defund the police. And there yeah. is, and when we talk about, um, which we won't this week, but when we talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women, that yes. will come up again. Because somebody mm-hmm. just reminded me of Val Dor. And I was just yes. like, oh my, how did I forget that? It's like, I, it's like, it's like over the river, you know? Yeah. And that still yeah. hasn't been um, resolved to any sort of justice. Yeah. No justice has been rendered. These victims have not had, have not been given justice and have been systemically and historically denied it. I think people need to understand that it's not like, oh, people kill, you know, people die and the police are terrible. The fact is, is that it's not only the police. It is the prosecutor's office. And as we've seen in... um, in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, it's also the medical examiner. It's a whole yep. fucking conspiracy. It's the whole colonial system, right? Well, At there every you go. Step, it takes different, it, you know, it manifests in different ways. And specifically when we're talking about women, even police violence, like it has such a broader range. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, again, like sexual violence and gender-based violence and how it impacts Black women, indigenous women, trans yeah. women, like immigrant women, with women disabilities like that's exactly like women with like, again, without and my, status. Yes. It's, it's yes. Thank you. Such a broad conversation. It's such a broad that conversation. It, it can't be fit into like 
a, a, an hour and a half podcast and I feel like this conversation around defunding the police like it needs to be diversified to actually reflect the fact that when we're talking about defunding the police we're talking about reallocating funding into initiatives that will actually help and support these communities instead of taking like a punitive and like criminal process and try to apply it to every single problem that different communities in our uh, in society are facing right Mm -hmm. so I completely agree with you yeah yeah so I think we need to understand a lot of people I know are like well how come this time is different like I I feel like the protests this time are just different and coronavirus I think is the reason why it's different so like the coronavirus pandemic has also led to such a drop in policing and crimes one reason why the policing and social justice project has called for the city of New York which has um the NYPD has a current budget of 5.6 billion dollars let's let's take that in five point six billion okay yeah um so there so the project is calling for a cut to the budget of one billion over four years new york spends more on policing than it does on departments of health homelessness housing preservation and development and youth and community development combined and the pandemic only keeps making the case that the money spent on policing does not help keep the city safer and is far better spent on protecting New Yorkers by improving health care and housing. You don't say. Haven't we been saying that? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, how many inquiries and media reports yeah. and research projects did it take for them to come to these decisions? Oh, to come, decisions. Yeah, to come, right? to like, come to the fact that the, sky, that the sky is blue and water is wet. That's yeah. like... I, I just anyway. So um, as an aside, in Ottawa, and I'm going to post this on our Facebook. Uh, the in Ottawa, I found an Ottawa police budget. I just want to thank uh, my my people from Cannes, which is like an anti-surveillance um, group. Yeah. So. They um, shared this uh, 2020 Ottawa police budget template that you can just honestly copy and paste and send to your to every representative that represents you at every level of government. Um, And if if you can't access that Black Lives Matter Edmonton has one. And yes, so let's talk a little bit about how policing works in this country. So even though policing is a municipal and provincial concern, in many cities and municipalities, the federal government is responsible for policing. And it's so and that's filled by the RCMP. They call it uh, contract policing. So the provinces of Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland and Labrador maintain their own provincial police force. Uh, the Ontario Provincial Police, Sûreté du Québec, and Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, respectively. Smaller municipalities 
often contract police services from um, the policing authority, so the provincial policing authority, while the larger municipalities maintain their own forces. So that's why you have OPP in some places and you have Toronto Police Services and Ottawa Police Services and so on. And I'm sure Windsor and all of those places have their own police services. Um, Newfoundland is a little bit different. Newfoundland's provincial police force is only responsible for the province's larger urban areas. The province has contracted the RCMP to patrol the rest of the province. The other seven provinces and three territories contract police services through the RCMP. And so, and there's a point to this. The RCMP has a civilian review and complaints commission, which can take in complaints about officer actions, but can only make recommendations to the RCMP, which the RCMP is not obligated to actually implement. What's more, the Civilian Commission has seen a huge rise in complaints without a corresponding increase in resources or power, leading to a backlog in Ontario. Uh, By contrast, the independent SIU, the Special Investigations Unit in Ontario, automatically investigates incidents where Ontarians are seriously injured or killed by interactions with the police. However, the SIU, I will say, has no teeth um, and rarely and rarely finds any wrong with the police. So to me, it's yeah. just a glass menagerie of bullshit. Um, yep. So now in 2017, a report from the Human Rights right watch on police abuse of indigenous women in Saskatchewan specifically recommended that Ottawa make the complaints commission's recommendations mandatory. The Trudeau government has not done so. The other thing too is uh, body cams, which I don't subscribe to. Uh, So, you know, I think body cams are just bullshit, but um, the RCMP apparently had been equipping its officers with cameras as part of a pilot program. After the study was completed, they pulled the cameras and suspended the program indefinitely. They refused to hand over data on how many Canadians have died during interactions with its officers and they do not even track use of force based on race. And what year was this? The report? Yeah. The Human Rights Watch report? Yeah. 2017. Yeah. I think I, I think the numbers I have are similar to yours, right? Because yeah. everything that we know are based on that report. And yeah. again, within a 10-year period between 2007 and 2017, there were 61 people who were fatally shot across Canada by RCMP officers. And more than one-third of them uh, were Indigenous, 
right? So yeah. we know that police-related civilian death um, rate among indigenous people is three times the national average. Mm-hmm. And we know that the police play a big, real, a big role in not only perpetuating gender-based violence against indigenous women, but also fail to adequately respond um, to, to reports made by them as well. And um, again, going back to that whole issue of MMIWG, Mm-hmm. And just to echo everything that you said, we know, again, even when there are reports, um, you know, the, the, the responses, what uh, recommendations are made mandatory and what um, and whether or not these police forces are held to account. It's really um, a matter of like a lack of political will when it comes to our leaders and Ottawa. Definitely. And so there was an article in the guardian in 20 in late 2018, um, that the Ontario humans, human rights commission, uh, commissioned a report. And that showed that black people make up 61% of the cases where police used force that resulted in death in Toronto. Wow. And this is all while they're like slightly more than 8% of the population. That's right. Right? So there's a problem. And and even from the preliminary data, there's a problem. We know there's a problem. Well, I don't need data to tell me that the police are are targeting black and indigenous communities to be honest communities know this yeah we've been it's real we were born knowing this because it's happened for so long and like white people just got here two seconds ago okay so oh my god all of these numbers they're horrible i know i know i know (laughs) i also want to note that the liberal government speaking of police the liberal government had promised before entering government in 2015 to change canada's prostitution laws which sex workers say puts their lives in danger and effectively criminalizes their work they have done nothing so that little display that that trudeau on on you know at the march and his kneeling and his so this is what pissed me off okay so now let me rant the man, the, there was a speaker talking, okay? And the man yep. decided to take all the attention and put him on itself, put it on himself. Now, people are going to ask me, well, what could he have done? He's the fucking PM. You think the news media isn't going to follow what he says? You know what he could have said in that moment? He could have said, you know what, guys? Thanks for the pictures, but let's listen to the, la- to, to the woman who's speaking because there's a lot that she's saying that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would have taken minimal effort. And I would have actually been like, oh, he's learning. But no, he takes it all yep. for himself. Okay. So let's go. <laughs> so let me also mention two other things. Number one, the Canadian Border Services Agency is another shit show. They have faced yep. a litany of allegations and racial discrimination racial discrimination. 5 years into the government, the liberals have yet to add an independent oversight of the agency because the agency does not have 
independent oversight. So they could do whatever the fuck they want and you can't do anything about it. And and the funny thing about that is that this government has done their best at times to to establish themselves as an opposition to the administration in south of the border. And yet when it comes to our border agency and border services and are our they immigration not only inactive policy. and yeah. our immigration laws, yeah. Are they not only inactive, but they're proactively misleading? Um, public thought and public opinion I love on, that. On, on what's going on, right? They are proactively um, misleading. I love that because that's exactly... It, it's it all just, marketing, it's, right? It it's, is. As long as we look like we're better than Trump, does it really matter if we actually are? Well, isn't that no, the government... I mean, this is a government. Like Optics is everything for this government. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking that this is the government we deserve because that is Canada in a nutshell. As long as it looks right on the surface, we don't want to delve into the actual content of it because yeah. it's too hard and it makes us feel icky and discomfort and, and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, yep. So uh, we'll wait. And we'll be waiting. Uh, I, I have been assured through certain channels that there's policy coming. And I said, I, I literally said, I'll wait to see it. And you know I'll write about it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So how about that? Anyway, next. We'll see it when we see it, okay? We will. (laughs) We will. It'll be like, uh, I'll wait. (laughs) Okay. So the NFL has left the plant in plantation politics. So let's... Girl. (laughs) Yo, yo, everybody, this is... This is a saga over like a 48 hour stretch that I kid you not took me like an hour to piece together. Okay. It was so extra. And and I was like, anyway, let me just, let me just get on it. So last Wednesday night during an interview with you who finance or sorry, (laughs) that must have been Freudian. I meant Yahoo finance. New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees was asked how the NFL should respond if players start kneeling during the anthem in protest of police brutality and systemic racism. His response was trash. And um, this trash response included... (laughs) You're going to love this shit. He said, let me just tell you what I see or what I feel when the national anthem is played and when I look at the flag of the United States. I envision my two grandfathers who fought for this country during World War II, one in the Army and one in the Marine Corps, both risking their lives to protect the country and to try to make our country and this world a better place. Number one, fuck you. Okay, because this I, I envision my family is so white. Secondly, uh, I'm sure there are black people kneeling whose grandfathers fought in fucking World War II. Why is it that army veterans are always only white? That's what I want to know. Okay, third, 
I didn't think the Iraq war was to make the world a better place or the Vietnam war. It was literally you fought for U.S. hegemony in the world. That's what you fought for. World War II was the last time where you could say, you know what? That was a war that needed to be fought. The rest of the, the rest of them, not so much. Okay. Yeah. So, so. Um, I mean, half of these people fighting for America at this point, if you ask me, are undercover Nazis or white supremacists at best. That's right. right. And the other half so are just trying exactly to get an education. What, <laughs> yep. They're ex- exactly. They were exactly what they claim to have fought against when it comes to, you know. That's a good point. Um, fascism and dictatorship. And now it's completely the reverse, right? You know what? Sometimes you just say shit that just bing, you know? And that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, so Breeze then, Drew Breeze issued an apology on Instagram and it was trash. Oh, we love an Instagram apology. Was it like a screen cap of a note on on his phone? It was it was worse. It was a picture of of a black hand and a white hand interlocking. U N I T Y Girl, these girl like these marketing associates have been busy making black and white hands left and right I'm for telling the past you. week. So because that was so trash, Drew Brees has since issued a second apology. I won't bore you with the nothingness. Oh, God. Yeah. Now, last Thursday night, so 24 hours after this Drew Brees thing happened, some of the NFL's biggest stars released a video challenge to the league. A-listers, including Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson... And Odell Beckham spoke powerfully about the omnipresence of systemic racism against black Americans. The players produced this video, and we have a clip for you. It's been 10 days since George Floyd was brutally murdered. How many times do we need to ask you to listen to your players? What will it take for one of us to be murdered by police brutality? What if I was George Floyd? If I was George Floyd. What if I was George Floyd? If I was George Floyd. If I was George Floyd. If I was George Floyd. I am George Floyd. I am Breonna Taylor. I am Ahmaud Arbery. I am Eric Gardner. I am Tamir Rice. I am Trayvon Martin. I am Walter Scott. I am Michael Brown. I am Samuel Du Bois. I am Frank Smart. I'm Philip White. I am Jordan Baker. We will not be silenced. We assert our right to peacefully protest. It shouldn't take this long to admit. So... On behalf of the National Football League, this is what we, the players, would like to hear you state. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit wrong and silencing our players from peacefully protesting. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Okay, that's the pause, just to let me know that I need to put a clip in. Yep. (laughs) As you heard, the video addresses the deep rift that has existed between the players and the owners ever since Colin Kaepernick first knelt during the national anthem in 2016 to protest 
police brutality and the killing of unarmed black men. Less than 24 hours later, Donald Trump tweeted his love of Drew Brees. So naturally now he's really canceled and doubled down on his four-year disinformation campaign that framed Colin Kaepernick's protest as protesting against the flag instead of what it was, which protesting against police brutality. So Friday night, last Friday night, Roger Goodell, commissioner for the NFL, blinked, and the NFL tweeted out a statement complete with Roger Goodell's acquiescence to the demands of the players of the video the night before. So that is the NFL saga. Now, I would like to say that our podcast stance is if they didn't apologize to Kaepernick, it ain't shit. However, nope. exactly. So we just we just want to put that out there because the point is, is that there's like still this elephant in the room and his name is Colin Kaepernick and you all owe him a public apology at the very least. Plus back pay, emotional distress and um, unclaimed earnings. But anyway, by the way, he's still suing the NFL. So yeah, why now? So why did the NFL Buckle down now. I'm asking as a serious question. What do you think? I don't know. You tell me. I'm I'm a hockey girl. Okay. You know. Well, and well, you with, will be the first one on this going on. <laughs> I think with everything that go that's going on, I think they know that this is, you know, with most protests at with most social issues, I think a lot of times our movements are used to just only being seen when you know when we're in the news cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it be like the sexual violence and the feminist movement, we with we believe survivors you know, in 2014 and, and the whole Gomeshi stuff yeah. up until Me Too and Time's Up and everything that's been going on in the past two years, I, I, I think um, a lot of times institutions count on movements to also subside and to kind of negotiate or to, to play around with their demands and with how how we're demanding change. Um, as time goes by or, you know, within these like new cycles that come and go every few years. But I- I'm not specifically sure what goes on in their minds or what's behind this decision. But I am guessing that uh, and I mean, and it's not to say that for hundred for the hundreds of years that, you know, governments and institutions in North America haven't been ignoring the demands and the needs of black communities. But again, as you said, this is a very specific moment in time. And I think they uh, honestly, institutionally, maybe to them, they made the smart choice of just like getting this over with. Right. Because they know every few years, every few months, this is going to come back and bite them somewhere. Yeah. And um, they really are on the wrong side. I mean, they could, you know, they could. They're, they are on the wrong side yeah. and they could honestly, they could apologize. They could draft a statement. They could say all they want, but does it really mean that they're committed to changing the game and changing the system? I'm not really sure. Well, um, I don't think a lot of those um, commitments are made in good faith. Uh, I think it's yeah. just to quell the in- immediate 
um, the immediate backlash. threat and backlash. Yeah. Otherwise, I, you know, unless you're coming with a call to action and a plan and a plan that includes accountability measures, then yeah. all this is marketing. That's all I see. And I mean, coming from league execs, you know, we, you know, if it was players, you know, for a player, it's fine. Like we have Tyler Sagan of the Dallas Stars talk yeah. about how he's just recognizing his privilege and wait, how, wait, say um, what the game? Yeah, no, 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 no. I know he's been talking. Back up. What is happening in hockey? Girl, a lot is happening. And I mean, when I read Tyler Stegen's name, I was surprised because he's literally the last person I would think, uh, you know, would talk about any of these issues. Like this is this is a this is a cowboy. <laughs> um, this is like a cowboy country music loving white guy from Brampton. And he is uh, he does have a reputation um, as one of the most basic white guys in the NHL. So when I saw his name, I was like, hmm, like, what's going on? I don't know. But actually, like, his interviews and the posts that he made on Twitter, I think they were more far more in-depth than I would give any white guy credit for. And it didn't actually sound like one of those tone-deaf blackhead statements that do come do, do actually come from the officials on the teams and, and the execs. So I think that's really interesting to see. And, you know, he talked a lot about how because of the nature of the game and the fact that players need to fall in line and be team players a lot of times do these issues and the realities facing black players are brushed over and he talked about that um which is i mean for for a white guy who plays hockey i mean i i think you know we we should be expecting more from them and the bar just does doesn't exist it's so below, you know, far below ground that we can't even like see where the standards are anymore. Mm-mm. But I, I was surprised to see that. But at the same time, I also want to recognize that like PK Subban, one of the like black players who plays for New Jersey Devils, um, he he's been very, he's been more. Uh, often than not active especially when it comes to donations and monetary support uh, contributing to to um, social justice or social impact campaigns but he is actually one of the people that's most recently talked about um, the need for changing the game you know he wears changing the game on his uh, I think uh, gear every uh, every time he plays he he knows he's been actively talking about the fact that changing the game is shouldn't be a motto it should actually be um, changing the narrative of you know no justice and no support and no accountability when it comes to um, black communities and he actually donated fifty thousand dollars um to the GoFundMe fundraiser for uh George Floyd's daughter Gianna. No way. Um, so that's been what's happening. Yeah. That's and he actually um published a video encouraging everybody else to do that and he he showed his commitment to changing the narrative. Um mm-hmm. uh, so that's on the player side. I think 
it is not a big change it's not this revolutionary idea still hockey is a very white game the audience the narrative it's actually been like the nhl i think to me is actually one of the most tone deaf leagues out there and that's saying um, something at least when it comes to racial equity i mean there you know the the uh, when it comes to pride i mean i've seen like <laughs> rainbow nhl gear here and there and i think the toronto um maple leafs morgan riley and uh the team manager they marched in pride last year as well but uh, again it's a very it's still very performative it, it is it, it is happening it's very slow it is not nothing near actual change in narratives and institutions but mm-hmm. i think what's even more important is to kind of um, look at how the leagues are going to change and respond to this um, moving forward, mainly because um, the NHL's executive vice president of social impact, growth initiatives, and legislative affairs, and a, a black um, African-American woman from the U.S., she's been talking about her exhaustion and the encouragement and the optimism and all of these different feelings that have been going through her mind watching these protests unfold and I as a hockey fan as a person of color as someone who at at times like I you know like the the national anthem start playing and I just mute the tv and wait for the game to start because I'm like "Mm, I'm not dealing with that patriotic bs (laughs) Um, as someone who, who often does feel um but but left out and left behind by a game that she's so invested in I'm more concerned about making sure that we're following up with the teams and the leagues and making sure that that the narrative is changing and that the game is changing, right? So I think that what's important to to mention is that there seems to be an awakening, even, yeah. even if a lot of it is performative. Like you have to, we live in a capitalist society, so yeah. you have to like kind of expect that. But... I am more concerned yeah. with keeping with us controlling our own narrative. That's more my concern. Yeah. So now this is I think the NH the NHL and the NFL are interesting in two ways or in a particular way. Number one um, and I mean, keep in mind that the NHL is the only one of the big four leagues that doesn't even have a domestic violence policy, right? So that's that's the extent of well, um, yeah, of their oh, yeah, you know, yeah. So here, yeah. here's here's also the thing. Um, I think the N- the average income of uh, NHL viewership is like a, it's high. Like it's like yeah. almost a hundred grand. Like it's high. Yeah. So and that's in the U.S. Um, in Canada, my guess is that it's not like that because it's more of a as high. It's more of a a, a national pastime, right? And a national yeah. sport. So you know, I would assume that there are a lot of Trump supporters in the NHL. Oh yeah. And oh, girl. the NFL. So <laughs> I and. This is the thing. This is where I want to kind of expand this this too. Is the is there an is this an indication of both these leagues falling out of favor with Trump? Because the NFL billionaire owners are Trump supporters. 
They handed him millions in 2016. They will do the same in 2020. Trump's um, reopened sports committees includes no union reps, no health authorities, no women, no people of color, but does include friends like Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones is a is a is a special type yeah. of asshole. Uh, Bob Kraft of the Patriots, who recent who if anybody would remember, recently got caught in Florida for a rub and tug. And um, as of May, the NFL and the ESPN were part of Trump's re-election strategy. Now, in Colin Kaepernick's, um, in the deposition, I think it was, for Colin Kaepernick's lawsuit, there was uh, a conversation. I think it was recorded or something like that. I think it was a recorded conversation between Jerry Jones and uh, Donald Trump. And Trump explained to Jones that he won't relent in his criticism of NFL players who were kneeling during the national anthem to protest social justice because, quote, this is a very winning, strong issue for me, end quote, Mr. Trump said in a phone call. Yes. So this is in the Washington, the Wall Street Journal. And he goes on to say, tell everybody you can't win this one. This one lifts me. Yeah. So the NFL's sudden support of its protesting players, Trump has lost something important. Even Breeze exited the Trump train on Friday, addressing the president directly and urging him to stop using the flag to distract America from discussing racial injustice. None of the NFL power, the NFL's power brokers are publicly in Trump's corner anymore, even if they still support him privately. And I think that's a huge shift. And one of the things I was saying, you know, my parents and I talk about these topics. And one of the things I was saying to them is like, um, this time's different. This is not Charlottesville 2017 where he took the media, he took the narrative and the media spun the narrative and just took his talking points and made a yeah. story out of it. This is where I would say U.S. media, not Canadian media, but U.S. media is um, is actually pushing back on this one. Yeah. And that's a huge I think huge the optics change. are different this time. Yeah. Yeah. But why are the optics different? Is it coronavirus? Is it because everybody's already suffering? I I wouldn't necessarily have a 100% answer for that. Yeah. I think... Again, I want to make sure that we're not folk. We're not taking away the conversation, the conversation from anti blackness. But I feel like with Corona in the past two and three months, um, the lockdown, the economic um, crash, everything that's going on, it did highlight a lot of different types of um, marginal forms of like marginalizations and shortcomings in our institutions and in our systems and in this capitalist world that we live in in ways that were not apparent um to the general public uh outside of marginalized communities and i feel like a lot of the education a lot of the 
uh, understanding of the inequalities, specifically when it comes to healthcare services, specifically when it comes to more institutionalized types of support, have been um, have increased. But at the same time, I think it is just um, it it just I I think I just want to give credit to all of the like black educators and black liberation activists who've been doing the work of not only pushing for uh, you know accountability when it comes to their communities but also uh, having done the the like work of educating and sharing space and like pushing like moving the needle for equality conversations in so many different spaces right yeah. i think that's what's different is that i i, I want to like give credit to to everyone who's been doing this work for years and even like in my own journey of like learning and unlearning, yeah. maybe this is, you know, the move, the, the solidarity and the allyship and the people showing up and taking the streets. I want to I want to make sure that we're giving credit to to the work that's been done by organizers um, and educators um, that's led to this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think for me that that's that that's how that's how I see it. OK. Yeah, no, like, I don't see. And that's the problem. So we're going to talk about performative allyship, brands, influencers, performative allyship. And one of the things that I have noticed is that, um, you know, in these sort of there, there's been a lot of talk about these these scheduled protests that happened over the weekend yeah and in a lot of canadian cities um there were questions and people would people messaged me and they're like are you going are you going are you going and i'm like no and there i said look i the organizers that i know who have been doing the work right yeah were not consulted nobody reached out to them and so to me, I am not here for like add on, like layering on top of stuff, you know, yeah. you don't duplicate other people's work. You connect with them. That's how you form yeah. communities. You know, that's how you build movements, And that's yeah. how you build movements. So to me, I didn't feel that that was respected. Yeah. And I didn't want to I didn't I didn't say it publicly on um on social media because I also didn't want to undermine it either. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if people There is also something to be said about who holds the rights for to leadership right. and organizing. Exactly. Within spaces, but also recognizing that the folks who've been organizing for years, the folks who've been showing leadership, the folks who've been really just investing their whole lives, like s- sacrificing their personal lives, their academics, their professional lives um, to make sure that they're building these movements in equitable ways in the most effective ways. Um, they know how to um, organize and how to lead movements in ways that actually move us forward and not create space for like validation of like white guilt and for uh you know uh 
you know, as we've seen with like Trudeau, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it is a thing that he does. Like whenever, you know, indigenous communities, you know, you know, wh- whether it be showing up uh, and like holding indigenous leaders and like shedding white boy tears to like taking a knee in front of Parliament Hill, like we know how performative he is, yeah. right? And yeah. I mean, it, with everybody else as well, like a lot of it has been. Uh, a lot of these spaces are being now co-opted by a white guilt. Um, but again, making sure that, and, and I echo your concerns, right? Because yeah. it's um, seasoned organizers know how to do this in ways that actually empower and uplift the voices of community yeah. and the concerns that exist within black movements without necessarily making this into a parade for, uh, you know, white to, guilt. And, and white to shame. be seen. Yeah. 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 It's it's the what I'm afraid of is that this is going to end up like the women's march where yeah. a bunch of Oh, the pussy hats. Yeah, where a bunch of white people just go for their little Instagram stories. Yeah. That's my problem and they're really not they're really not about solidarity. The thing yeah. about it is a part of it is about solidarity. You know what I mean? Because it's 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 a majority of it, I think, is performative. Mm-hmm. And I think the real action will always be within the communities and within the um, networks that we build. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, at moments of tension and moments of uprising like this one, I completely agree that I mean, I don't want to like negate the fact that we are seeing a lot of performative allyship or performative action happening. Right. But at, the, at least within the communities that I'm engaged with, whether it be on Twitter and real life or on Instagram, I feel like there is a greater focus on mutual so, like respect and solidarity and organizing. I would and agree. Again, a lot of it does go back to organizing that's been happening not only within the Black Liberation Movement, but also work that's been happening by Black people in every single social justice movement that I've been engaged with. I also want to shout out a lot of Indigenous communities that have been in full solidarity yeah. with us. Like, full solidarity. Yeah. Not uh, pussy hat solidarity, because that's not it. Oh, no. Like, full solidarity. So shout out to our, you know, Indigenous brothers and sisters out there. Thank you. Because I know I've received that. Yeah. So now, did you participate? No, you didn't. I know you didn't. But this, or maybe you did. (laughs) Blackout Tuesday. Oh, yeah, I did. Ah! I posted it early in the morning. And then I was like, wait a minute. I know. What's going on? I was like, that was like, because I knew what it meant. Yeah. But at the same time, I, it's. You Yo, get caught up in the you moment do. and I posted it. And then an hour later, I was like, okay, but like, is that the smartest thing to do? And then I went online and I saw the amazing critic, the criticism, the amazing criticism that was being shared by scholars and by leaders and by a lot of folks yeah. on the ground. Yeah. And it made sense, right? Yeah. I think maybe if you're an organization that maybe talks about like anti-blackness and solidarity, um, but does not have black leadership. Yeah. Maybe posting that and saying, okay, so we're going to post this to make it known that we're listening, that we're taking part, and I'm going to go back and see how we can actually improve our life. Right. Or if you're a person who's like, you care about this issue and you've posted this, and now you're going to take this time to actually reflect on how you've been demanding emotional labor from your one black friend all along. Okay, that makes sense. But if you are someone who hasn't been doing any work, like staying silent and like is not activism for you. 
you, right? Because like you you weren't saying or doing anything before this anyway. So posting this like again is a performative allyship, right? Completely. Because if you are not doing the work anyway, what does staying silent and being hands off and listening really? Yeah, mean? like you've if been you're, silent. If you've never if you haven't <laughs> been committed to the, yeah, you've been silent. If you haven't been committed to this cause to begin with. Well, let me just say that speaking of silence, so as an aside, I'm getting like messages from people who I used to work with um, at Finance Canada, which like completely like discriminated against like when I talk to you about racial discrimination, I know it firsthand, like in a in a setting like they're awful. They're awful. What a sexist and racist institution. Anyway, so these people. They'll, they messaged me and they're like, I know that you, what Finance Canada did to you. Oh my God, you, the soft white lady voice. Yeah, <laughs> what Finance Canada did to you was just awful. It was awful what they did. And I'm like, where were you? Okay, seriously? Yeah. Seriously? Where the fuck were you knowing that this was going on? You didn't reach out to me. You didn't give me signs of solidarity. You were never my witness. So shut the fuck up. Like, honestly, honestly, you did nothing. Now, some people were not like I I remember I got a a message from one person who just didn't work in the same area as I did. So I'm like, okay, fine. But still, like, I'm just like people. If you you want to you want to step up now, you be a witness for that black colleague. And instead of saying to them years later that something wasn't right, how about this? How about you say something? How about you say something to uh, your peers and your manager and do something? Because the time is gone for your little, little, like, half-ass attempts at solidarity in your stupid black squares the time is over we're not taking that anymore so unless you're coming with like with action and follow-up and accountability and evaluation i i don't want to hear this you. means nothing exactly yeah exactly so i mean most of the time when they do that is to just like validate their own guilt that's right? exactly what like, it is that's because your forgiveness and your recognition is all it's going to take for them to to get over their guilt and to feel like white saviors. And, you know, oh, my God, I just did like I, I participated in this act of allyship today. So I'm, I can't be anti-black. Yeah. And that's that's all it means to them. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's, it still centers them. Yeah. And it's it's terrible. It's terrible. Anyway, yeah. so we've been talking about these black squares. So let me explain. Last Tuesday, black squares ran through Instagram like a matador from a bull. The black squares were part of a movement called hashtag blackout Tuesday, where for one day, the idea was that people would cease Instagram's ambient noise for dinner plates and napping cats and instead void vow to stay silent. Uh, some posts read muted, but always learning and always listening, which is bullshit because white people don't listen for shit. Okay, so <laughs> after digging into the source, she found that the trend, so this is Feminista Jones, if you don't follow her, please do. 
um, found that the trend originated from two black women in the music industry, Jamila Thomas and Brianna. Oh, geez. Igamang. I don't know who encourage folks to spend the day reflecting on ways to support the black community under the hashtag. The show must be paused. Sorry, y'all. I mess up Smith as a last name. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I mean, sorry, Brianna, if I got your name wrong. So Feminista Jones, along with other black activists, was quick to inform allies that posting empty boxes to the movement's hashtags was pushing out valuable information that organizers wanted to share. So, uh, like where to post and donate, as well as video evidence of police brutality. The backlash to Blackout Tuesday was almost immediate, with prominent Black Lives Matter activists pleading for people to delete posts that included the hashtag and others pointing out the largely performative nature of this trend. So not only was it nothing, it was actually harming us. Thanks, white people. Okay, so... Public figures and brands apparently have zero self-awareness and think that they can get away with platitudes of support. I just want you all, I just want to point you all to Holt Renfrew, who last week tweeted out Black Lives Matter. And I had to remind them that they racially profiled me in their store last year in Calgary. Now, and in talking to others, apparently Holt Renfrew, like, like racially targets black people on mass so they could stick that you know where so um we've seen i i find that influencers are particularly annoying me okay because i see some influencers on my instagram one of whom is black and is doing this performative Black Lives Matter photo shoot thing. And I honestly am like, really? Really? Huh? Really? You especially should know better. But um, so I'm finding them particularly problematic. Also, yeah. also um, <laughs> Ashton Kutcher had a video last week. It was hilarious. Oh, no. I died. So anyway, a lot of this is going on. Um, it's it's hard to okay. So if I'm new to this, so now that I just told off everybody, um, I'm gonna help you. <laughs> Vinegar and honey. <laughs> okay. So I would say if I were to give advice. Uh, number one, you follow the, the accounts that you know are solid, like ours. Yes. Um, and I'm not saying this. I know you're on it. It's fine. Um, um, but you know, like there are follow, follow, like, I don't know. I feel like I shouldn't tell people to follow these people because <laughs> it's going to be like a scene from Get Out. <laughs> you have all these white people following you and then you're like, oh my God, what is happening? What's happening? Am I under surveillance? <laughs> like, 
Anyway, uh, they're coming. They're coming. Anyway, um, and nonprofits are particularly vulnerable in this area. The statements I've seen from nonprofits have been putrid. They do not mention black. They do not mention Black Lives Matter. They do not mention police brutality. They they then do this unity bullshit. And to be honest, let me get on this rant. Okay, fuck your UNITY. Okay, and the reason is, is that this is a moment for us. We don't get many. So you're going to take it from us and make it into a whole let's let's have a humanist revolution. Fuck your humanist revolution. And fuck you if you take all this space from black people and the movements we built and the protests that we have ignited and you take it and you make it into something which absolves you of any sort of input that you have had, you as white people have had. In but per- that is in, the non-profit movement pro- for you. In promoting white supremacy. That is supremacy. the non-profit sector for you. That's it. That's the non-profit sector built on the like l- exploited labor of black women uh, and continues to give them no credit, no amount of credit uh, for, uh, like, for any of the work that's happened. Like the non-profit sector is built off the backs of exploited and underpaid and precariously employed black women who put 110% into every movement, into every organization they join. And by the virtue of being white dominated, Karen dominated, and as well as chronically underfunded, don't have the capacity and the and the willingness to really um uh, challenge and understand their own white supremacy and their own oppression, right? And again, like I I I am not surprised. This is obviously disgusting and a part of the bigger problem of um like the exploitation of black women's labor but at the same time i'm like that is a nonprofit sector and again as a leader within the nonprofit sector as someone as a young racialized woman who who did start my own nonprofit i completely understand how even myself i'm the part of, a, a part of the problem right and um what's the name of your nonprofit again there's it's Young Women's Leadership Network. Um, we're under construction right now. It's very exciting times. But basically what we do is we work with Black, Indigenous, and racialized young women and gender diverse folks to make sure that we're building capacity for civic leadership and political activism um, through ways that are intersectional, that are anti-oppressive. Um, and we're very young. We're only two years old. We're youth-led. Uh, we don't have a core budget but that said again we are a part of this sector that is built off of the exploited and underpaid and unpaid labor of black indigenous and racialized people that often more often than not um takes credit for work that's actually happening by black women whether it be within social justice movements or bigger and multi-million dollar um, national nonprofits. This is an issue, and we keep it. You know, keep seeing it come up. Um, I notice you know, that the bigger uh, nonprofits every year. I notice that the bigger nonprofits have white men as presidents. Oh yeah, United Way. Oh yeah, you know. And I'm just like, how are you challenging 
I like I don't understand how you're a nonprofit and you're not challenging the existing social structure. If you're not doing yeah. that, you're not getting with my money. White men being you're not getting with my white money. Men being on your board, I get it. With white men being on a board, I'm like, okay, yeah, no, so the I'm purpose not sa- of the board is to bring in money, right. And you want his access, right. and His networks to build your right. nonprofit. But when you put them in decision making and positions of power, that's where I have an issue. Specifically, when it comes to uh, issues impacting women. I see that like this whole he for she and this whole gender equality BS that's been fed to us in the past few years through like mainstream feminism. Yeah. There is a greater focus that may on making white cis heterosexual men feel at home. Yes. Within feminist movements. Yes. Than actually focusing on trans and gender non-binary people who are some of the most Tell impacted em. and violated people in our like um, nonprofits and in our spaces. Right. Um, so I completely understand what you're saying, and I agree. Girl, you're ta- you just took us to the mountaintop, okay? Because <laughs> like-, like white men, we don't know them, we don't play with them. No, thanks, bye. Yeah, like I I noticed that there is a lot of effort being put into making space for men before they make space for black women, disabled women, trans oh, yeah. women, um, working class women. They will make space yes. for men faster than working class women. And it's disgusting. And I want nothing to do with that shit. I am and that so- is the exploitation thing, yeah. right? Because exploitation of black women's labor is not only taking credit for black women's work. It's not only, you know, having them in unpaid and underpaid and precarious positions. It's literally counting on black women to show up for you, even though you will never show up for them. So basically the right? nonprofit like, so people, sector is like the democratic. Yeah, and it's like people are taking it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the but non... People- <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead, go uh, people ahead. Are taking, people are taking advantage of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, this whole idea of black women as leaders and black women as strong members of our community who will carry us all forward. It This whole dehumanization of like black women within movements and within nonprofits, that's what's really leading to this exploitation, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't feel like, we don't feel like black women need to be nourished. We don't feel like black women need investment. We don't feel like black women need to be supported within our communities and the fact that we continue to count on black women to show up for us and they do a hundred percent of times of the time uh without necessarily looking inward at our deep structures and our company cultures and in our movements to see what are the ways that we're exasperating black women's resources um and uh investments into our movements that's what we mean by exploitation right yeah and it's it's this is i think part of the reason goes back to that whole caretaking and how we treat caretaking too and the fact is is that uh, let's be honest um the west indian domestic scheme so part of our immigration policy oh yeah was part was built on the backs Listen, a lot of the reason white women are executive directors, okay, is because of the West yeah. Indian domestic scheme because their mothers didn't have to to take care of their kids because they had um, a black nanny 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Because of immigration policy. Under the worst conditions. Under the worst yeah. conditions. And then, which the, which then turned to the Filipino nanny. Yeah. Okay. And so what white women have done actually is build their economic power off the backs of immigrant women of color. Yeah. And that's my mic drop. All right. So that's it that's it thank that's... you for joining us at the yeah thank you for <laughs> our ted talk episode <laughs> see you next yeah bye <laughs> okay see you next week <laughs> so okay but we're gonna do a proper vibe so where can people find young women's leadership network so you can find us on instagram facebook twitter and linkedin at young women lead but the e in women is an x and you can also find us at ywln.ca. Uh, I'll make sure to link it on Bad and Bitchy's social media um, pages as well. But thanks for asking. Yeah. And you all, their Instagram is fire. You better believe it. Oh, yeah. No, I love your Thank Instagram. You. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My bitch is bad and bullshit.